Well, go ahead and open your Bible to the prophet Isaiah, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is that hardback uh, that is around you. We're going to be in chapter 12 of Isaiah, <clears throat> and uh, the title of this morning's message is Drawing from the Well, but I, I want to start actually in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verse 25 is where Paul and Silas, as you know, they were preaching the gospel, they were thrown into prison, and, and listen to what this says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, this is not uncommon to history. Here, here's another occasion where singing took place in the midst of suffering. A man named Jan Hus, I know it looks like Jan, if Faith, if you go to the, the slide there. Hey, Faith. One more. There you go. There you go. Jan Hus. Jan Hus. Uh, so it looks like Jan, but it's Jan. Jan was uh, executed in 1415. 1415. And he was executed because of his opposition against the, the Roman Catholic Church. He opposed the extravagant lifestyle of the clergy which also included the Pope, and he also denounced the, the sale of indulgences by the church. He also preached and declared and, and wrote books about Christ being the only one that is the head of the church and not the Pope. He also said that God alone is the one that forgives sin and not the clergy and the authority of the clergy. Now, when Hus was being burned alive, it is said that he could be heard singing a hymn of praise about Christ over the flames. How, how could men like these, Paul and Silas, Jan Hus, and many other Christians throughout, throughout the history of the world, how is it that they could sing in a moment of terrible circumstance? These were not quiet, personal songs where they were just muttering them under their breath where nobody else could hear them. As we see from Acts 16, that they were singing loud enough that other prisoners could hear. They were listening to, to their praises. Jan Hus had an audience, an audience there to see his execution, but he had an audience that would hear the praise about Christ. How is it that they could, they could sing in such terrible circumstance? Why would they sing so loud, so clear that other people could hear them? This is the heart of the message. Because they had an unstoppable joy that they had discovered. An unstoppable joy that was welling up within them that there, had, there was no other outlet for them other than them to sing and to sing praises to their Savior, to their Lord Jesus Christ. They'd experienced something. They'd experienced the saving grace of Jesus. And there was nothing that could rob them of that joy in which they were experiencing and the overwhelming excitement that they had of potentially seeing Jesus face to face. And, and Jan Hus soon did that in his death. They understood that there was a remnant people of God. And that remnant people of God, they were indestructible. So whether they died or not, the kingdom's progress was not contingent upon them. It would grow, it would progress, even if they did die. Christians, over the past 2,000 years, they have conquered the fear of death. They have conquered the mistreatment of kings and of people. 
How do they do this? It's by way of meditation upon the glorious grace of God. Christianity, it has preserved and persevered. Through times of terrible persecution and great periods of disillusionment and deception, and at the core of this, perseverance, this perseverance, it is it is holding to the doctrine of the grace of God, God's grace. Isaiah 12, as we find ourselves in this morning in our study through Isaiah, it gives us a template, a template of a, a right response, a right reaction of the heart of the mind to the glorious grace of God. What chapter 12 is, is a poetic book that finds itself in the form of a song or a hymn. Now, there are three parts to this song, three parts to this poetic language that is here, and we'll identify these as our outline this morning, these three parts. But let's read these six verses, this song as a whole, and then we'll walk through these three parts. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The first section of this song is in verses 1 and 2. And what do we see here? It is talking about our personal salvation, our individual salvation. Verse 1, as it says here, it is dealing with the most amazing thing about our salvation. And what is the most amazing thing about your salvation? Well, the most amazing thing, I think, is not that I want anything to do with God, but that God wants anything to do with me. Isaiah had this same understanding in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, we, we saw Isaiah's response in his speaking out this amazement. And he says this in verse 5 of chapter 6, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was shocked. What was he shocked by? He was shocked by his unclean state in light of a holy and perfect God. He understood in that moment, in Isaiah chapter 6, he understood uh, his unworthiness and just how quickly, how quickly this came to his mind as he stood in the presence of the ruler of the universe. This ruler who is, who is perfect, his, he's perfect in his holiness and in his, his righteousness. How is it that a holy God a God like this that Isaiah sees who is sinless, how is that God wanting anything to do with me, a sinner, a person that has been consumed by sin? How is it that God can have anything to do with us? 
How is this possible? Shouldn't, shouldn't God, in His infinite, perfect justice, punish us for our rebellion and our sin against Him? Yes. Yes, He should do that. But what we see here in verse 1 is that God is more than just singularly just. He's more than just just. What do we see from verse 1? We learn that He is also infinitely merciful. Look at verse 1 again. As it says, Your anger turned away that you might, what? Comfort me. If God simply looks the other way from sin, then what does this mean about God? Well, it would indicate that He's not really good. He's not really perfect. He's not really righteous. He's not really just. If He just allows sinners to go free, if He just turns a blind eye to what's happening, then God is not good. He is not perfect. He would not be who the Bible declares Him to be. So how is God's anger turned away? As verse 1 says. It says it's turned away. Again, through 10 chapters of Isaiah, we've heard wrath, 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 little glimpses of hope. Chapter 11, we see a great glimpse of hope that is given to us. But here, it says in verse 1 that his anger is turned away. How is this anger turned away? Well, God turns his anger away from us by way of a propitiation. That word is really important, a propitiation. The word's extremely important to know, not just how to spell it, as that could also be helpful, but in really knowing what does it mean. What is a propitiation? A, prop- a propitiation is simply this, if you wanted to simplify it down to this idea, it is a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. A wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Or, another way to think of that is, the wrath that was coming has been appeased by a payment. A payment was made for the wrath that you deserved. Now, Jesus is our propitiation. He is what we need. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, where he says, Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Now, what Paul is saying there in passing over former sins is not that he wasn't going to deal with them, but he was delaying his wrath. Why? Because there was coming a propitiation for those sins. Now, if the wrath of God was not absorbed in Jesus Christ, then his anger would still be directed to us. And this is what John the Baptist says in John chapter 3, verse 36, as he talks about the wrath of God still remaining upon all those who have not trusted in Jesus as their Savior. The wrath is still there. It hasn't been removed. How is it removed? It's only through Jesus. So this is so important for us to understand and for us to communicate to other people. This word propitiation. Jesus takes our place spiritually. And the wrath that God had intended for us, for you, has been absorbed in Him. The payment was good. It appeased the wrath of God. But there's another beautiful truth about propitiation that we need to understand, and we even see here in verse 1. It's not just the appeasement of the wrath that is important, but there's something else that's taking place. Because of the wrath, satisfying work of Jesus... There's also 
a relationship being restored. Look there at verse 1 again. What, what does it say? Your anger turned away. This is really good news. And then the second part of that, what? That you might comfort me. Not only does Jesus satisfy the wrath of God, but now God's favor is upon you. His favor. His comfort is given. The work of Jesus satisfying or appeasing the wrath of God does not put you into some sort of neutral state with God, as in, well, the wrath's not on you anymore, but I'm just going to stand back at a distance from you and watch what happens with you and anticipate you messing up so I can bring wrath back upon you. And that is not at all what verse 1 is saying. It's saying that comfort has now come. Comfort is coming because wrath has been removed. So you're not in a neutral state with God, but the favor of God is now upon you. He's not against you anymore. He's for you. He's bringing comfort to you. What's also really important from these first two verses is the word you that is used here. It is used in the second and first person singular, but it will later change in this song into a second person plural form from verses 3 through 5. Now, when Isaiah is speaking about you, this is an individual he is talking to, an individual including himself, as he could put himself into this song. There are no second-hand salvations. And this is, this is the point. I want you to understand. There are no second-hand salvations. No one will be in heaven because of their parents' faith or their grandparents' faith or anyone else's faith. They are not there because of somebody else's repentance of sin, but their own. Jesus deals with people individually, personally. He speaks about this in John chapter 10 when, when he refers to himself as the good shepherd. In, cha- in John chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, Jesus says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. We have a personal salvation, and because of this personal salvation, we now have a new relationship with God. This God that was bringing wrath, but now has brought comfort. God has promised to save a remnant people. We've seen this through Isaiah, right? We've heard this this talk of this remnant people of God, this promise of God's remnant people, how he's going to preserve them and reserve them. But what's important here is that this remnant people is made up of individuals, individual people, personal relationships that are formed. When Isaiah says in verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Sounds extremely personal, doesn't it? This is extremely personal. So this is a description of a personal relationship that he has formed with God, not because of himself, but because of a a propitiation that has happened on his behalf. This personal relationship as we would call it today, is one that happens because you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the foundational reasons why we as a church, or really any church, 
should be extremely concerned about a person being born again before they're brought into the membership of the local church. Each person must have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be part of the universal church, as we would say, the capital C church, and also how this plays out into the local church, which is the representation of the universal church. So if someone is not part of the universal church, then why would we put them into the membership of the local church? And the same thing goes for the signs of the covenant that believers have as they have been uh, brought into this relationship, and they are symbols of what has taken place. So baptism and communion. Now, if baptism is an outward symbol of the inward transformation of the heart that has taken place by way of the Spirit, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus, why would we baptize individuals who have never had this happen, such as babies or children or even adults? Why why would we do this if the symbol is for those that have been brought into that relationship? this personal, individual relationship. Communion or the Lord's Supper is another way that this is, this is shown to us, our inclusion. Communion, it was instituted as a remembrance for all those who come under the blood covenant of Jesus Christ. If someone is not under the covenant, then they have no part in partaking of the elements of communion. They are remembrances. Remembrances of what? The change and the transformation that has happened. What the Lord has done for us as our personal propitiation of sin. The Lord's table is not to be participated in by your blood family because dad and mom are Christians or my grandparents are Christians, but by a person's personal individual inclusion into the spiritual family of God. A person's salvation is extremely personal. But a person's salvation should never be private. It's very personal to you. It should be. But it should never be private. Meaning that you've been called into the family of God personally, individually, by name, as John 10 tells us, But you have never been called to be private about that relationship. And this is what we see in the next section of this song, verses 3 and 4. It talks about our corporate joy. The inclusion of others into the joy in which we now have. As I said, there's a change in the word you that that is used here. From the singular usage into the plural usage. There's a corporate joy that is developed because of the personal relationship that has been formed and created by the Lord. And all who call upon the Lord as Savior will give thanks to the Lord. They they will do this with a joy-filled heart. In verse 3, what it reminds me of, the first time that I read it, it just jumped off the page at me. It seemed to be quickly referring to Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. If you know the story of the woman at the well, right? In John chapter 4 is where we find this story, and Jesus, what's really interesting about that story is it says that he intended to go through Samaria. Why? To have this personal conversation with this woman. And listen to what he says to this woman in verse 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to himself, 
will be, or referring to the well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him, referring to himself being a well, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he makes a comparison of the natural world to the spiritual one. This well that this woman came to, she hoped to find refreshment. She came there by herself. She came there isolated, alone, which is all a picture of what was happening spiritually to her. And Jesus offers her something that she's never heard of, never experienced. And what this woman needed was this water of salvation, this water of salvation that would relieve the spiritual thirst in which she had in her soul. And everyone needs the same water of the same well. The promise Jesus offered was that if she would drink of this water, if she would draw from this well of salvation, it would produce something in her. Notice what verse 14 says. What what does he promise? It will become something. It will become a spring welling up in her. It's a spring of eternal life. Now, the mention of a spring, it should give you a picture, it should paint something in your mind that this is a never-ending, ever-expanding, ever-flowing thing. This woman is going to find a joy that she had never known before because she, she has now experienced something that she, she never had. She desperately needed it. She didn't know it. She, she thought, well, I just need water, just physical water. That's what I need. Jesus says, no, if you drink from this well, you will never be thirsty again spiritually. Now, the rest of the story from John chapter 4 tells us that this woman, after she, she heard these truths, after Jesus really confronted her in her sin, she leaves her water jar, the reason why she was there, and then what does she do? She runs back to town, right? She runs back to the community. She's overwhelmed by her experience with Jesus. She runs into town. She calls other people to come and hear from Jesus, hear hear from this man that I believe to be the Messiah. He's told me everything about myself that nobody should know about me. And she's calling them to come and hear who who this man is, to drink from the same well that she did. And when they do, what do they experience? The same refreshment, the same relationship that this woman now has with Jesus. This this experience was one that they all needed. They all had been longing for. They all had been thirsty for. But now they have experienced a personal relationship with this Savior. The individual joy that this spring has brought uh, brought about has developed in, in them a corporate joy. The whole community now has been changed There's a gathering now of the town that's loving Jesus Christ. Now Jesus, he establishes the church in Matthew chapter 16, which is one of the greatest gifts that we have been given as the people of God. We've been called individually into the relationship with Jesus Christ by way of his sacrifice, by way of his propitiation. But when this happened, we were also made into the remnant people of God, the promised remnant people. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, you were scattered, you were all over the place, you were not belonging to God, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How has this happened? By the personal propitiation by Jesus Christ. Now, the natural response of God's people who have received his mercy should be one that is filled with joy, that is filled with excitement, that is filled with praise. And this is what we see from this song giving thanks to God for the, for the deep wells. If you notice, the word is plural there draw, from the, uh, draw water from the wells of salvation. Why does it use a plural form of wells? Why, why not singular? Isn't it just Jesus? Well, the work of Jesus shows, demonstrates, gives us grace, mercy, love. These are the wells of salvation. This is what we're experiencing when we come to know Jesus Christ. When we drink from these waters, we experience a salvation that is brought only through Jesus. And when this happens, all those who drink of this salvation's water will have a common mind, will have a common spirit in them. Why? Because they come to the same place. They are focused on the same water, the same work. And from this, there comes four imperatives that we see in verse 4. When you experience this, when this happens in you, there's four imperatives that are in play in verse 4. It says, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. That these four imperatives are connected directly to your personal experience and then to the corporate experience that we have and the joy that we have. First of all, we give thanks to the Lord. Well, obviously, because I now have something I didn't have and I didn't even know I really needed. I have water from the well of Christ, the wells of grace, of mercy, of love. I give thanks to him for that and for everything else. Why? He is over all. He is the sovereign Lord. I I give him thanks. I have to give him thanks. Who else could I thank for what I have? The second thing, we call upon his name. Why? Why? Because there's no one else that has that kind of power. There's no one else that could create out of nothing. Jesus is the source. He's the one that makes intercession for all of our needs. As he comes to this woman in, in John's gospel where she doesn't even know she needs it, he intercedes on her behalf. And now she's calling others to call upon his name. And this leads to the third thing, that is to make known his deeds. We proclaim, we tell others, hey, look at what he's done. And we do this with our life, we do this with the scriptures, we show people through history, look at what God has done. Look at what he has accomplished. We make known his deeds by how we live, by how we talk. And this leads to the fourth thing, is that is that we proclaim his name, that it is exalted, that it is lifted high, it is above all things. And so as we we give thanks as we call upon his name, as we make known his deeds, we do the last thing too, and that is that we proclaim his name. We make every effort to make his name known. The local church is the design that Jesus has established as a means of these four imperatives to be played out. Now, obviously, these four imperatives can be played out individually, and they should be. Like, these should be true in your life, but also corporately, they should be growing in your heart to, to have them played out corporately together because we are the remnant people of God. We do these collectively. Why? Because we have been made a collective by the work of Christ. 
Christianity. It is a community lifestyle as planned and as designed by God. Christianity is not to be lived out in isolation like this woman was doing. Now, have you ever noticed culturally what's been going on, what's been happening for quite some time now? Have you noticed that there's a community for everything? Have you noticed this? You hear that word? That word gets attached to everything, like every group is called a community now. Why, why is this? Like we hear this, like the gay community, the homeschool communities, online communities, etc., etc. Right? Everybody has a community. But why? Well, people are longing for community. They are longing to be part of a group that they fit into, a group that is bigger than who they are, but they have the same interests, the same passions. They, they want something that adds meaning and value to their life. It's bigger than them, but they want to feel bonded to it in some way. For example, maybe you have said this, we won the Super Bowl. And the question is, you, like you got on the field? Like you played? Like you, you coached? Like you were in the front office of the organization? Like you, you know, you... You did payroll for the team? Like, what do you mean we won? And usually what people mean by we won is that I wore a jersey and I watched the, the, the televised event, I yelled at my TV, accused the referees of all the terrible things, and we won. I ate some chicken wings, and we won. <laughs> of course you didn't win. Who won? The team did. The coaches did. The front office did. You didn't. You didn't get a ring, did you? What's the difference? (laughs) One is legitimately a community. One is legitimately a team. The other is just merely a fan, merely a bystander, looking in on what is happening. People love to talk this way. People love to think this way. They, They love to think themselves to be part of something bigger than what they are, But really what people do with this idea of community is that they find their identity in the community. This is what they're looking for. It's what they're longing for, an identity for themselves. Their community is who they are. And they're defined by how the community defines itself. This is a dangerous path. A community can be extremely helpful, and and it can also be really beneficial to an individual, but it can also be extremely dangerous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived during uh, the, the Nazi rule in Germany. And uh, he, in his book, Life Together, he, he wrote these words. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Now what Bonhoeffer is getting at here is anyone who is not their own person, as in their identity is found in the community, they're going to be in great danger. And also those that want really nothing to do with community but prefer to be alone in isolation, they are also in great danger. Now his warning for those who claim Christianity, which is who he's writing this book to, this life together, it's for Christians This is a great warning for Christians, but the principle can be worked out even further into all areas of a person's life, whether they're Christian or not. For the Christian, we must be aware, first and foremost, that our identity 
as a Christian is in Jesus Christ. Why are you called a Christian and not a churchian? You're called a Christian because you should be like Christ. Your identity is in Christ. As an individual person, you have been bought with the price of what? Jesus' blood. You have been bought as an individual off the auction block of the slavery of sin by the propitiation of Jesus Christ. You have been given the name of the Lord. The church is not our salvation, nor has the church made me who I am. The church is the community that we should be part of. But the church is not my identity. We should identify ourselves with these people because we are like these people because of what? We've been bought with the same blood. We have been given the same name. You are my spiritual family. I should want to be with you. You should want to be with me. We should want to be together. There's a natural progression that begins, and it begins because of the radical change that has happened internally in us. As Jesus has brought us out of something that was dead and wretched into new life, there's a new creation now in us. Because of this, I should want to belong to new things, a new community, a new family. I should not find my identity in the church, but in Christ. But I should want to be part of the bride of Christ. And this is what the local church represents. This is the warning that Bonhoeffer offers. If you're finding your identity in the church, you're mistaken. It is in Christ. But if you say, well, my identity is in Christ, I don't need the church, you are mistaken. You are in great danger. Drinking of the wells of salvation naturally produces a commonality in mind and in spirit for all those who drink of it. And the deeper we drink of these wells of salvation, the, the more we praise Him. We do this individually, but then we do it corporately, as a community, as a body. And those who have experienced the grace of, of our Lord realize just really how thirsty they have been, how desperate they need Him, and how much more they need of Him. So when we gather, we are reminded of what we desperately need. We, we do this through the, the different aspects of our gathering time together. We're reminded of the experience that we have had, that we are reminded of the fullness of joy that we should have because we're drinking of these wells of salvation. One pastor, Ray Ortland, he, he says this, world-conquering Christianity is an overflowing fullness of joy. Why do you have an overflowing fullness of joy? Because of the well you're drinking from. You want to conquer the world, Christian? Drink of these wells the well of grace, the well of mercy, the well of love, and it will be flowing out of you and it will be joyful. Grace, it awakens in us a joy that goes beyond human explanation or comprehension, and it leads to, like Paul, like Silas, like Jan Hus, to sing, and to sing out loud, not just from the soul, but out of our mouth. Sing from the gut, right? 
the individual Christian should sing. You, Christian, you should sing. I mean, you're commanded to right here, right? Verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord. Verse 6. Shout and sing. Like those are commands to you. We should sing as individuals, but we should sing corporately because of the joy that we have because of our salvation. It's a natural response. So here's the question, or a couple of questions. Why don't you sing? Why don't you sing? Do you find yourself during the times that we are singing corporately that you're not singing? Or another question, you're like, well, I do sing. Okay, question for you. Why don't you sing louder? What's the reason for your volume? Maybe, maybe you just don't have the volume. You're like, well, that's, that's why. It's a physical reason. Or let me offer a couple other things that I think might be the case, could be possibilities. Is it because you haven't really experienced the joy of salvation? Is it because you're drinking from the wrong well? Is it because you're finding your identity in a community that is not centered on Christ? And I don't necessarily mean the church, but I mean outside of the church, that you have identified yourself with a community that is not Christ-centered, and you find all of your joy, satisfaction in them and not in Christ? Or are you relying upon other salvation as your own? If these things are true, then of course you do not have joy. Of course you will not sing. Of course you will be quiet. If these things are true, it's no wonder. It's no wonder that that is your physical response. One author has said, begrudging praise is not praise at all. Begrudging praise is not praise at all. If, if you have been drawing from water that is not from the right well, the right source, then of course you're not going to experience the joy of Christ. In your praise, it will always be begrudging in spirit, and it will never actually be praise at all. Our personal salvation leads to our corporate joy, our corporate engagement. Then out of both of those, we, we take aim at our universal mission, and that is to glorify God in all things. This is what we see in verses 5 and 6, the third aspect of this song. Our universal mission is to glorify God in all things. Look at verse 5, as it says, He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Now, people are impressed by people, right? People are impressed by human achievements. They're impressed by human abilities. I, I mean, I was just thinking about this this morning. I, you know, I grew up in the, the, the birth of the X Games. Are you familiar with the X Games? And like the winter X Games, and the first time that like uh, a guy did like a 720 on a snowboard, it was like nobody could ever do that. And then it's like next year, people are doing all kinds of like backflips and everything else with the 720. It's like, what? Like, mind just blown. Like, I can't believe people can actually do this, people can accomplish this. And then we have records that are broken every year in some form, in some way. And, and people love to base success upon numerics. They, they love to use the measuring rod that is tangible to them. But is this how God measures success? No. No. 
this, this past week in an adventure club and in the youth curriculum that, that is used, uh, we studied through the, the story of Gideon. And maybe you know that story of Gideon where he has his army of 300, and God tells Gideon to reduce his army down to 300 from 32,000. Seems to be the opposite way, right, of winning, an ar- winning a battle. And why does God do this? Because God was making a point to Gideon and to everybody else, and to even to you. God is making a point that the Lord deserves and will get all the glory. What does he deserve? Glory. What will he get? Glory. We should be far more concerned with God being honored than we are with having a large force or hefty finances or numerical success in some way. A church, a church, a local church who blares the glory of God in all things, I mean, sings it, blares it with their life, with their mouth, it is that church that will change the community around them. And a church that is simply pleased or content with gathering and going through the motions of some religious practice is how a community is lost around them. A church's aim is to be on seeing God's glory in all things, that He is glorified in every aspect of their existence. And when churches lose this aim, it's when a church becomes liberal in their treatment of the Scriptures, their views on moral standards decay, their their interactions with the lost and many other things decay because of their focus being put on either themselves or upon something else other than the glory of God in all things. So how do we make His glory known in all the earth, as we're told to do here? I think this relates back to these four imperatives of verse 4, and we strive for these things individually, but also corporately. So I think a great question to ask ourselves is, am I living out these four imperatives as an individual? Then how is that looking as my involvement into the local church? We thank Him for what He has given to us. We thank Him for what He has done for us. We call upon Him to bring about the changes that we need, that the church needs, that the community needs around us, that the world needs. We tell others that that He has done amazing things, things that are so beyond comprehension, like this woman at the well, going and telling people of what He has done and what He is going to do. And we proclaim that He is the only one that should be praised, that should be exalted. We are striving for the glory of God in all things. And if we do this, if we do this, if we are striving for this, there will be a natural singing of joy. If you don't want God's glory in all things, then of course, of course, you will be discouraged. Of course, you will be downcast. Of course, you will be depressed. Of course, you will be disjointed from the body. But if you are aiming at His glory in all aspects of your life and the life of the church, then there will be a real praise, a real joy, because it's a natural progression of it. This morning, we are going to spend a time of reflection and response different than what we had before. And maybe you noticed at the beginning, we started with three songs, and usually we do four or five, and And that's been intentional because I wanted to end this morning with more singing. Because this should be a natural response from us. 
because of our individual salvation that we have, our, our corporate joy that we should experience, and, and this is our universal mission. This is the mission that we have, to give glory to God in all things. So we should use our mouths, we should use our voices as reflections of the, the inner desires that we have to see God glorified in all things. So if you would, please stand and let's sing another three songs together as an expression of our joy to the Lord.